do you guys take like ex like estrogen and all that stuff? I, I don't even know what the estrogen is. Is that that estrogen thing? Alright. No, and I just recorded that. I just recorded that. I'm kidding. Alright, anyway. Um, we're in church history in the modern age, and we're talking about how, if you remember, we've been talking about the last couple weeks, how, how uh, European Western powers have been throwing themselves into building empires. They're, they're building all this colonial empire all over the place. They're, they're, everything's kind of up in the air and changing. As all this is going on, in the churchy world, we've had the ecumenical movement beginning. I'm going to do a little bit of backtracking just because it's been a couple of weeks since we were talking about this. If you remember, that's where these multiple churches were getting together, trying to share some resources, right? They're, they're trying to uh, learn what they've all done in missions over the last century. They're trying to say, how do we come together, even though we've got different traditions, different backgrounds, different theologies, how do we come together to accomplish common goals, right? Good stuff. Really good stuff. Should be tearing down walls between churches rather than building up walls between churches. Yippee. But, in order to do that, um, churches needed to ignore large areas of potential disagreement, right? Because if you're going to come together to work together, and you know that you know we are the first Dunky Baptist Church as opposed to the first Sprinkly Baptist Churchy, you know, and we split 30 years ago with a really ugly split, if we're ever going to work together, we have to kind of either deal with and finish dealing with that question of dunk or sprinkling, or we have to stop talking about that in order to build this bridge in Paraguay. Right? So when is it a good thing to ignore areas of disagreement? When is it a good thing to say, let's not focus on that, let's focus on this? Um, if, 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 if the other side isn't being biblical, you should ignore the disagreement? I don't think there's ever a time to ignore them. Yeah, but okay. conflicts, if you don't agree with what's important. Okay. Penley, is a better question? Then? If it's, you know, okay, a flood happened in New Orleans, and so everybody goes down there and works together. Yeah. Obviously, you want to work together, and if the If it's not germane to this, if, if you if you sit there and you go, okay, this this guy is broken and bleeding by the side of the road. Can we help him? You go, is he a Baptist? You know, it, it really doesn't matter, actually. It doesn't. It's not germane to this. Can we do this? Can we focus on this? Um, I was working. I started trying to work with this group in Peoria that is working toward racial reconciliation, and a couple people came that said, yes, but you're not working toward. Uh, reaching out to the LBGT community, you're not working toward uh, gender reconciliation with women and things. And they went, well, it, no, we're not. I mean, that's, we may not all have the exact same views on those, but we're, we're trying to work on this. Can we, can we table some of those discussions so we work on, on this? And the people said, no, no, we can't. And so we cannot work with you. They go, could, you could you maybe just... Can we table some of that so we can work on the stuff that we know we're trying to work on here? Now let's go back to, when is this a bad thing to do? Now you might want to bring up well, what you're saying. Why, I think my issue is more is with the word ignore. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, this is just an easy one. Randy and I don't agree on some stuff, but we're not, yeah. we're not ignoring it. We've had healthy conversation, and I think we still recognize it, but we can worship together. I, that's why I say I think ignore is the word I don't like with that. Fair enough. But do you and Randy ignore your issue most of the time? I, I don't consider it set aside. It's not set aside might be the better term. It's just, that's, that's, there you go. Yeah, there and now, purposely, yes, I'm, I'm writing this in ways that try to incite conversation on account of, I'm trying to incite conversation. But to, to sit there and go, I choose not to dwell on that part all the time. There are times where I don't. But there's also times where they work to actively round off the edges of the disagreement. It's like, oh, okay, if we're going to be talking about helping this guy by the side of the road, asking the form that he was baptized in is irrelevant for that moment. But to sit there and go, and it doesn't matter anyway. Well, it, it did 30 years ago when you had your split. You know, it, 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 you can't just say, oh, who cares? It doesn't really matter. When is this a good thing to round off the edges and say, let's just... Those things that we do chafe on, 
Let's say that none of those things matter anyway. Potato, 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 potato. Doesn't really matter. Rarely, if ever, is that probably a good thing. Now, every once in a while, there's something where you go, really, really, you have made it nothing but sharp edges. This has become something that you are, a hill that you're living and dying on. Maybe this is not worthwhile for it to be that big a deal. But in general, in general, I would argue it's, it's rarely a good idea to just say, let's pretend none of that matters. Let's change everything so that we say we only focus, the only things that do matter are these two things. Love people and wear purple. That's it. If you do that, you're a good Christian. Yeah. So, so it's like, really you're calling that purple? Eh, you're not wearing purple. You. Oh, me, yeah. I mean, you. Sarah and I are about the only Christians in the room. All right. Anyway. There's purple in there. Potato, potato, tomato. So Henry Van Dyke, in the midst of all this, died in the wool, Presbyterian. So he 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 goes to Princeton because that's the Presbyterian school, right? That if you want to be a good, good, solid conservative Presbyterian, you go to Princeton, as we have seen, right? And he goes to this Princeton Theological Seminary. In fact, he's the one that chaired the team to put together the first printed liturgy for the American Presbyterian Church, the Book of Common Worship, in 1906 which not everybody liked. Because remember, this is not 2016 Presbyterians, this is 1906 Presbyterians. And 1906 Presbyterians say, liturgy, that's a bad thing. It's hard to be on this side of history and think of that one. They're like, liturgy, that's horrible. Liturgy that incorporates Catholic prayers and prayers from other traditions other than the Reformed tradition? Doubly horrible. No! The people talked about, oh, you got these canned prayers. One guy in the annual meeting, one guy in the annual meeting took the book and flung it across the room and said, ah, smells of priestcraft. People are pounding on the tables. I would have loved to have been in this meeting because it's a lot more colorful than most of the, of the annual meetings I get to go to. But they're screaming at each other and calling each other papists and pounding on things and flinging things across the room. Others said, no, 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 this isn't just Van Dyke's prayer book. The whole team put this together. And it's not a liturgy. It's not a ritual. Yes, it is. But it doesn't contain canned prayers. It contains great live prayers of our fathers. And this is the key thing. One guy argued, are you going to tell the man who wants to use this book that he can't have it? It's one thing to say, I don't think liturgy is a good idea. It's another thing to say, I absolutely will prohibit the use of this in churches. Are you willing to do that? No. So it got adopted. As we've seen, though, Princeton <laughs> used to be the Presbyterian school. Used to be all about being Presbyterian. But it's been moving decidedly liberal, right? And especially in the last century, even more so. And Van Dyke is influenced by this idea of saying, well, we can change things. We can do things differently, for good or for ill. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Mm, kind of depends. So he led a move to revise the Westminster Confession that had been around for like 300 years. Yeah, we can change that, right? It's okay to change that, isn't it? Let me ask, is it okay to change a document that everybody has liked for 300 years? Can you adapt it? Yes. You can write your own. But you cannot ever edit that. You can't ever revise it. That's really bad. Stop it. <laughs> I would say you can revise it. Why? Yeah. I mean, oh, why? Why? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you Separate have to make it clear that it's a revision that you're making, and you're not completely changing and destroying all copies of the original. But it's not a Yeah, it's the same argument with hymns and contemporary songs that you've talked about, where you know you're like. We can't use an organ in the church. We can't use a guitar. And now we're like, you can't not use a guitar. Man, these get to be interesting questions. Okay, Randy, you're shaking your head and saying, now why? Well, I think just like she said, keep the original <laughs> uh, and then have, or, you know, maybe a revised or a modern language type, just like we do with the Bible. Sure. You don't uh, take the original standard version. You have a revised standard version. It's an interesting question because on one level you say it's just a human document. 
It's a human document they wrote 300 years ago. Why can't we, why can't we say we did some things wrong and we're going to fix it? Can't we change things that we say, you know, upon 300 years of thought, we're going to think this is maybe better if we change it, make it something else? It's just a human document. You get to do it. If you can write an email and then go, well, I should change that before I send it out. If you can do that with an email, this is just a slightly more complicated version of the same thing. It's like, well, I wrote it, and then I, I realized I needed to change it a little bit. Yes, it was written by a committee. Yes, it's been out there for 300 years, but it's still a human document that you realize needs to be changed. On the flip side of that, this is something where you go, yeah, people wrote it that way for a reason, and for 300 years, the church has used it this way. It is a human document, but it's also been something where people, <laughs> right, wrong, or different, have invested a sense of tradition into it, a sense of this is what my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, 300 years of my family have followed. When I say these words, I say the exact same words that they said then. It has its own life that goes with it. So, some people say, sure, pitch it, change it, tweak it, change the wording, change the theology of it. Who cares? It's still the Westminster Confession. Other people say, if you change one moment of it, one bit of it, it is no longer the Westminster Confession. It's now the Westminster Confession revised. If people have problems with rewriting the wordage of the Bible, could you imagine if they said, let's tweet the content. You go, but it's the word of God. I tell you, there are people who feel that way about the Westminster Confession. It is the word of God. Anyway, he also specifically wanted to take a swipe at Tula, particularly the L. Didn't like the L. If there's any part of Tulip that people don't like, it's usually the L. Maybe the P, usually the L. <laughs> Limited atonement. God only died for the people he chose in advance. The revision said specifically, God loves all mankind, not just the elect. Jesus atoned for all mankind, not just for the elect. Thus, all babies who die go to heaven, not just the elect babies. So, Everybody can look at this list and find something they go, okay, and something they go, no, no, no. Point is, he also created a statement of faith uh, that downplayed the centrality of the Bible. Didn't say that the Bible isn't important, just didn't say that it was. Kind of dropped all that language, dropped all that language about inerrancy, dropped all that sort of stuff. Never even mentioned hell or damnation or what would happen to people outside of Christ. We don't need all that kind of sour negative talk. Which kind of puts his hymn that he wrote, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, in an interesting context. If you realize this is a guy that says, we learn more from nature, really, than we do from the Bible, per se, and doesn't God love everybody? Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory. God of the Lord of love. You love everybody. All thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing. We learn more from nature than we do from Scripture, necessarily. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever-blessing, ever-blessed, wellspring. You bless everybody, everything. There's theology behind your hands, right? So, whether you really like Van Dyke or really don't like Van Dyke, whether you agree with him or don't agree with him, if you say, oh, I've always loved Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, I, I love that, that hymn. There's the theology behind it that, that goes into that. All who live in love are thine. If anybody loves God, then they are the elect. It's just the way that works. Okay, lots of conservative Presbyterians went ballistic. Like, that's not what Calvin said. You can't touch the Westminster Confession. You can't mess with that. It's basically scripture. You can't do that. But a bunch of liberal Presbyterians, groups that had felt like they can't be part of that general assembly, they went, oh, well, that's a group I can be a part of. And so a lot of liberal Presbyterians came back and rejoined. And they're like, oh, well, if we got rid of all that electy wordage in there, if we, if we have a statement of faith written like that, that I can get behind. Which is cool, right? Breaking down walls. Even if you totally agree with everything he said, if you totally agree with some of what he said, whatever, can you see why this sets a precedent as to what it means to be Presbyterian? Prior to this, what it meant to be Presbyterian was 
like devoutly Calvinistic and probably Scottish if you're in the United States. But now you see it's like, no, to be Presbyterian is to say, yeah, tweak it. Tweak it, round off the edges. Yeah. What do you think it should sound like? Let's do that. There's a whole wave of liberal Presbyterians that entered into the Presbyterian church in one big chunk. Kind of sets an important historical precedent. When you think Presbyterian today, do you tend to think very conservative, very uh, reformed in this tradition? Or do you tend to think fairly liberal, um, embrace extremely liberal perspectives? Which? Yeah, there's two major branches of the Presbyterian Church, one that is a bastion of one and one that is a less committed bastion of the other, you know, but it's like, and, and, with, and then there are all sorts of other different divisions of Presbyterian that fall along that spectrum. So it's kind of interesting, it's kind of interesting to see where all this comes from, that a lot of it comes from one guy going, oh, we can fix this a little bit, and the ripple effects of that particular pebble thrown into the pond. Yeah. And Dyke's not a Scottish name. No, it's not. Yeah. No, but uh, he's from Pennsylvania. We're going to give him a pass. <laughs> okay. Last time, though, I left off with saying that the Fundamentals series was published. In 1909, give it a little bit of background, the New York Presbyterian Church uh, churches were trying to decide whether or not they can ordain ministers who couldn't affirm the doctrine of the virgin birth. They didn't say they disagreed. They just couldn't say that they did agree. They said, I'm not going to preach against it. I just, I'm never going to preach it. Can you still ordain guys like that? And you got to understand, you go, well, where did that come from? Can we just talk about where that kind of mindset came from? In the end, the assembly did ordain the guys. They're like, well, we never said anything that required that you say that in order to be a, a minister. They're solid otherwise. They're saying that they're not going to preach against. I guess we can. I guess we can. But then they established five fundamental doctrines that all have to be affirmed by any kind of future ordinance. If you're going to be ordained, you got to agree with this. Number one, you got to agree with the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. Number two, you got to agree with the virgin birth of Jesus. Number three, you got to agree that Christ's death was an atonement for sin. Number four, you got to agree in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's not just his spirit rose or poetical. No, he actually physically rose from the dead. And you have to agree with the historical reality of Christ's miracles. You can't just say, well, he was a good teacher, and people have made interesting fables around him. No, no. He actually did this stuff. Would you agree that these are fundamentally, crucially important doctrines of Christianity? Why or why not? Oh, y'all were chatty about so many other things earlier. Oh, I think they're really important. All five of them are very important. I think that's why we Okay. Anybody? Anybody else want to jump in on anything? Well, it relates to okay. It relates to scripture. So it's like you, you start throwing that out. You're like, hey, so that that's 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 really important for just just foundational. With Christ being God, which the virgin birth adds to that too. Plus him being man, that he was. I mean, I don't know. I guess if you start really taking them apart, I think you can see how you can go off and really crazy places. And I have, I have multiple colleagues that don't believe in multiples of these, which is makes it interesting to chat with. Yes? And why did they stop at these five? There's some other... Like, what else would you throw in there? Well, one of the things... Stop breaking things, Jenny. Is there a belief in hell? Is there a hell or that? Exactly. There's, there's things, like, which obviously was even germane back then, because you go, Van Dyke, I'm not going to say he didn't believe in hell, but he yeah. kind of excised all that language. So yeah, I mean, there's other things you can include in here, and I mean, there, there are some, there are some churches that even said, "Why don't you have a statement of faith?" And they hold up a Bible and they go, "This is my statement of faith." How could I summarize and, and say, "Well, that one is less important than this one"? But there's always going to be things that you say, "This is a deal breaker," um, etc. So I mean, they they try to keep it to these five. These are the things that they thought were the most fundamental. In 1910, to preserve what you know, he perceived was an eroding sense of theology within the church, 
there was a Presbyterian layperson named Lyman Stewart, no relation, I don't know, uh, who funded the publication of a series of booklets about the fundamentals of Christianity. He collected 90 essays written by 64 famous authors, including uh, theologians like B.B. Warfield, lawyers like Philip Morrow, preachers like Thomas Spurgeon, son of C.H. Spurgeon, all these people writing essays. And they said 90 different essays, we're putting them in 12 different volumes. Covered theology of the Trinity, because people aren't thinking this through. Um, the historicity and authenticity of the Bible and the dangers inherent in higher criticism. Remember when we talked about that whole JDP thing and, well, he didn't really write this, and this is clearly added later and all that stuff. Uh, the interrelationship between faith and science. Saying, you know, you can be a strong Christian and a good scientist. You can be a good scientist and a strong Christian. If they are not in conflict, and here's why. The interrelationship between the Old and the New Testament. Saying, here's how, here's how they interrelate. This is why you need to, to study both of them, etc. The historicity of Christ's miracles and the truth of the atonement and the resurrection. Saying, this stuff actually happened. And here's a, an historical argument as to why. Um, the importance of prayer, the toxicity of sin, the falsehood of spiritualism and Mormonism and Christian science and Catholicism and evolutionism and all those isms. You'll notice that Catholicism was nestled in there, um, which a lot of people didn't necessarily appreciate going, wait, you put us in the same category as Mormons and evolutionists? What? Yes, yes, they did. They put them in the same category. They talked about the need for a new birth in Christ. In order to be a Christian, you have to be a born again person. You can't just have been born in a church. You have to be born again. Since Lyman was a student of the Schofield Study Bible, remember that this has come out and been really, really popular, he was thus a devout dispensationalist, which means that a fundamental part of the, <laughs> uh, of the Foundations series was dispensationalism. So every essay either talked about that or at least didn't stand against that. We talked about that, what dispensationalism is, multiple times. Because these guys were rich, he and her brother, we can talk later, that's all right, that's all right. Uh, because Lyman and his brother Milton were rich, they sent over 3 million volumes, 250,000 sets of these, completely free, to every minister, missionary, theology prof, uh, secretary of a YMCA or YWCA, Sunday school superintendent, everybody that they could get on a, any kind of a mailing list at all, they sent a copy of this whole set to in every English-speaking country that they could get it. So, can you see why this book series was kind of important? It was foundational. I mean, there were some people that looked at it and said, oh, this is trash, and threw it away. An amazing number of people said, oh, this is indispensable. Thank you. But whatever you felt about it, this is going to make a difference in your ministry. You're either going to take a stand against the fundamentals and the people who would buy into the fundamentals. What would you call people who buy into the fundamentals? Yeah. So you're either going to take a stand against the fundamentalists, or you're going to say, wow, I'm totally a fundamentalist. But whatever you do, there's been this divide, and we've been talking about this growing divide between liberal and conservative Christians. That just became this huge valley, this huge chasm between them. Because all of a sudden, everybody like in the world is now aware of what constitutes fundamental Christianity that what constitutes all the people doing it wrong. I mean, that's that's the, the way that it's being perceived. There's always going to be moderates, always going to be moderates. But once you have the fundamentals, the Schofield Study Bible on one side, getting in the hands of like every minister, even, even into the hands of lay people, and once you have a growing ecumenical movement of people going, can't we just get past, I think this... I think Jesus was God. I think he wasn't God. Can we just focus on the important thing of helping people? I just read this fundamentals thing that said, you're a horrible person. No, 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 no. You're a horrible person for believing stuff. Increasingly, they're chafing and chafing and chafing. The conservatives painted this shift toward liberal theology as this downward spiral, which is a little bit like what, uh, what uh, Donna was arguing. I don't know if you can read these, but the top step is Christianity. But then once you get rid of, once you say the Bible isn't necessarily an, a, a, um, accurate, once you say, well, you know, man, man wasn't necessarily made in God's image. I think we were evolved from apes. No, I don't think the miracles like the virgin birth stuff, I don't think they actually happened. You know, Jesus doesn't actually have to be God. I think, you know, I, 
once you move all these things down, there's no atonement, there's no resurrection. You move to agnosticism, you move to atheism. And you say, ultimately, once you start chipping away at this stuff, it all starts crumbling away until you find yourself saying, there is nothing left for me to believe in. Can you make a reasonable argument for that? Can you make a reasonable argument saying, once you start saying, oh, I, I don't think you can actually believe the Bible, and uh, I, I don't know that we really have to see a theological element to everything in life, and you know, I, I don't think all this stuff actually happened. It's fables. It's important fables. But they're still just fables. That There's a logical argument that's saying, well, once you start that, it's going to be hard to stop that. Once you say, I don't think the Bible is historically accurate, I think there are errors in there, and I think that Jesus' miracles didn't actually happen, but I really think he's a good guy. You know, he's a good guy that thought he was God. I think he was probably confused. Now, now we're starting to get to Albert Schweitzer saying, Jesus was wrong about everything he said, but right about all of his heart behind what he did. So let's just do that. Yeah. Let me nitpick you. I might argue that it, instead of atheism, it would be like deism at the bottom of that. Whereas... They, don't, they probably wouldn't say there isn't a God, there's just nothing personal about our God. Well, maybe what we can do is put an extra step there, above agnosticism, say deism, agnosticism, atheism. Deism saying, oh, there's some sort of godish thing out there, probably. I don't actually know what's out there. You know, I don't think there's anything out there. That would might be the, the, the logical struggle. The liberals said, you know, you conservative fundamentalists are anti-intellectuals. Thou shalt not think is your motto. You're chained to your Bible. You're shackled to it. You're basically worshiping the Bible instead of worshiping God. Can you make a reasonable argument for that? Logical. Can you make a logical argument saying that once you say you cannot change the Westminster Confession because you're not supposed to think about it, you're just supposed to do it. Once you say... <coughs> Oh, and that's the argument. There's a lot of. I remember asking somebody years ago, because people make faces. I, I remember asking somebody in a, in a, in a church years ago, uh, I, I said something, they, and they cited the Westminster Confession as a, as a response, and I said, well, it's not like it's scripture. You know, I, I, I just quoted the Bible, and you just quoted the Westminster Confession in response. What does scripture say? And, he, and, and it's not in this church. There's nobody in this church. It's in a completely different church. But he looked at me, and he says, but it is still the word of God. No, actually it isn't. It's somebody's commentary on the Word of God, and it's a good one. You got very upset with me for saying it was not the Word of God. So, can you make a reasonable argument that if you say this writing is unquestionable, it's not for you to question it, it's just for you to obey it. Just, just do it. That, that is somewhat anti-intellectual. That, that it, once you say... Uh, if it's not in the Bible, I don't believe it. Aren't you shackling yourself to Scripture? By the way, I'm using loaded terms, but Paul would be giddy to say, yeah, I'm absolutely shackled to Scripture. I remember, want to date me, see how old I am, um, I remember seeing a Ricky Lake episode, where she, <laughs> talk show, where, where uh, they were talking to, uh, to a, a, a Christian and trying to show how stupid the faith is. And they said, because there's, there's one guy on there that says, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good Christian, but I, I work at a strip club, and I do all this kind of stuff. But I, I go to confessional every, every week, and everything's cool with me and God. Then I go, and he doesn't intrude on the rest of my week. I don't intrude on what he wants to do, and he doesn't intrude on me. That's what Christianity is. And the other Christian's like, no, he's either God of everything, or he's the God of nothing in your life. You can't shoehorn him in whenever you feel like it. And I said, but you're saying that you can't get through the day without God. And she said, right. Like, okay, so God's like a crutch. She's like, absolutely. No, I mean, it's like you're saying you can't make a decision contrary to what God would want you to do in your life. She's like, I pray, I don't, know. Everything that they kept trying to say, well, clearly, you're shackled to the Bible. She's like, gleefully so. Yes, I don't want to make a decision. That I don't pass by God. I don't want to do something that goes contrary to what he's saying. I, yes, he's absolutely my crutch that I lean on. Absolutely. And finally, Ricky Lake's like, okay, never mind. And, and went on to a completely different topic. But it was interesting. So, so to, to the fundamentals, they would look at this picture and say, change the Bible? Happily. 
Absolutely. I never want to get far from my Bible. I absolutely want to change. I see it as anchoring myself, a big heavy anchor chain to the Bible. You see it as shackling myself, making myself a prisoner to it. No, I'm a slave to God. They go, see, that's horrible. No, Paul thought being a slave to God is a good thing. Looking at different things from two very different perspectives. Both sides tend to demonize one another, and they almost never see it that way. Why is that? <laughs> I mean, they tend to sit there and go, oh, no, 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 I'm going to attack you because I feel that you're attacking me. Or this little meanie thing here, fundamentalists. If they're so certain of their faith in God, why do they feel the need to bully, harass, coerce, demonize everyone they disagree with? Of course, that's what non-fundamentalists do, too. They like to demonize, attack, harass everybody. Oh, if you can't read this, this is your brain on religious fundamentalism and little parts of your brain saying, like, this is the part that, that has nonsense and empathy sensory system is underdeveloped. You can't realize that what you're saying is total nonsense. Persecution complex cortex. Scans reveal this area is self-induced only. You're the only one that thinks you're actually being persecuted. You idiot. We hate you. Well, apparently it's not self-induced. I mean, think it through there. The fact that you made this says you, you kind of are persecuting them a little bit. Think it through. Just a smidge. Case in point. You remember Kim Davis? County clerk in Kentucky refused to issue marriage licenses to, to gay couples even after the Supreme Court declared such refusal unconstitutional in 2015. She became a fundamentalist Christian in 2011 after living an extremely not-Christian lifestyle. She'd burned through husbands and had numerous affairs and messed up human being. But she gave her heart to the Lord in 2011 and she was really trying to commit to her marriage and really trying to take this seriously. So when the court made the decision, she said, no, on the grounds of personal conviction, I can't do this. I, I, this goes against my religious freedom to do this. I think this erodes marriage. And believe me, I'm sensitive to that. Even though the, text, or the Kentucky governor had ordered all clerks in the state to comply with the court's ruling, she said, well, it's still technically against the law in Kentucky. You haven't changed the law in Kentucky, and so I still get to do this. Even though it's federal law, and my, and my governor said that we should do it, I, I think I still have a legal standpoint here. What was the liberal reaction to Davis's decision? Now, remember, fundamentalists, they attack people and vilify and demonize people because they don't really believe their own position. What was the non-fundamentalist reaction to Kim Davis? Do you think so? Do you get the impression that they demonized her, attacked her past? said, what a hypocrite, she's been married four times, divorced three times, has at least one extramarital affair, she won't issue marriage license to gay couples claiming she's defending the sanctity of marriage. Ah, what a hypocrite. No, she's actually a, a convert. That's, that's the whole point of this. Kim Davis says what hurts most is when people say God doesn't love her. You know, like what Christians tell gay kids every single day. I, cause I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you think homosexuality is not God's will, but if you do, clearly you tell gay children you hate them and God hates them, right? Because those are the, that's it, that's all you can do. I love to fight a meme with a meme. I love this, not going to church because of the hypocrites is like not going to the gym because of all the out of shape people there. That's the whole point of church is that you want messed up people there to learn, oh, maybe I shouldn't keep doing that. My point is, this fundamentalists say you're all wrong and I will take a stand against you, because everybody who doesn't believe what I believe is wrong. And the liberal stance says, everything that you believe that I don't believe is wrong. It's still going on, right? And it's not that they're fundamentalists, or that they're liberals, which is what we love to do. Fundamentalists think everybody who disagrees with them is wrong. Liberals believe anybody who disagrees with them is wrong. It's that they're humans. I guarantee, I guarantee, Emily, I guarantee you think anybody who, who disagrees with what you think is right, you think they're wrong. Yeah. Because that's why they're wrong. That's the whole point. No, I think everybody should believe everything they want to believe. No, you know. Yeah, they do. No, you know. No, yeah, I think that, that, that some people are just plain wrong. I disagree. You mean you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Cry. <laughs> it's human. So what we got to do is instead of sitting there going, oh, it's wrong to everything somebody's wrong, stop and go, can we do this in loving, gracious ways? 
We say, I, I disagree, but I'd like to converse with you about it. I don't want to pretend that we don't disagree. I don't want to round off the sharp edges. I just want to talk through it. Can we? And if we still disagree at the end of the day, can we still get pizza? All right. Moving on to something completely different. 1914. Assemblies of God is founded. Were founded. Grammar that is technically correct. The assemblies of God do not see themselves as a single denomination. They're a confederation of congregations that are part of the same basic movement. They're not not a denomination. Odds are, if you were ever to comment to somebody about the AG denomination, that person would say, no, 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 we are not a denomination. We just have our own schools, our own seminary, and our own statement of faith, but we are not a denomination. They go, quack like a duck, look like a duck, swim like a duck. I think you're basically a duck. But anyway, coming out of that Azusa Street revival, um, this explosion of the Holy Spirit that, that came in California, a number of pastors and churches came together because they're like, okay, first off, we've seen this fizzle, this big move of the Holy Spirit, and that time it just fizzles because it was all directed by personality. Uh, it became very emotional. Like, can we can we say if we genuinely think this is a move of God, how do we how do we keep this going? And second, can we keep it going without having the weirdest elements in charge? You know, the loudest, screwiest parts, because as we talked, there's some loud, screwy parts going on there, right? But can we can we just be on top of this? Can we manage this and, and, and make sure that we, we nail it to some scriptural doctrine without trying to manage and control the Holy Spirit? We don't want to direct it, we don't want to talk. By the way, the answer is, yeah. you know, can you can you manage the Holy Spirit's movement without managing the Holy Spirit? But you at least can say, can we try to avoid as much chaos as we possibly can? So several churches decided to, and 300 pastors together come together at Hot Springs, Arkansas. Like, let's talk about this. And a whole bunch of those pastors said, we're going to come into fellowship with one another and be part of the same movement. Let's hold each other mutually accountable. Let's make sure that nobody goes off the deep end one way or the other. They, they developed a series of general councils of the Assemblies of God, the various Assemblies of God out there. So they formed them in America, Canada, Great Britain, Australia, lots of different places. In 1988, they, they finally came together as one fellowship across the world, this international, this rural Pentecostal Assemblies of God fellowship. They have a statement of faith that has four core beliefs that they now refer to as I value because they're edgy. Um, first is the importance of salvation. The church is made up of believers, right? It's not made, you can't just be, say, I was born in Illinois, and since most Illinoisans are Christians, I'm, an, I'm a Christian. It doesn't work like that. Second is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this. What is baptism of the Holy Spirit? If anybody remembers. That's a way of exhibiting it. What is it? Beyond, like, a conversion of the Holy Spirit, and like, your heart is being, like, overflowed with the Holy Spirit. Right. Subsequent to salvation, people who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them can be filled to overflowing, supersaturated with the Holy Spirit, um, which actually has some grammatical basis in Scripture. Um, Peter, who already received the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus blew on his... Yeah. In Acts 2, Peter, at that moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, addressed the crowd. I mean, the Greek is pretty clear about that. He wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit in that way five minutes before, and arguably wouldn't have been three hours after. There's an argument for now exactly what that means. You can have the discussion, but I mean, grammatically saying something other than I have the Holy Spirit in me can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, Emily. I'm also thinking of um, way back in the Old Testament, when Samuel was Yes. You yeah. Depends on which side of the argument you're from. A good Pentecostal would say, exactly. And a good arguer against Pentecostal would say, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in dwelling in the, in the first place. So it's the Old Testament. So they had the Holy Spirit for a moment. That. I get that, but I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying both sides look at both sides look at that and say, see? Just like both Calvinist Arminians read. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
And both of them look at it and go, see? I'm right. If you believe in God, you have everlasting life. Period. Period. Duh. The Arminians go, whoever continues to believe, that's the force of the Greek. Duh. It all depends on which side of that equation you're standing on. And yes, in AG theology, the initial physical manifestation of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit like that, is always speaking in tongues. Not every Pentecostal believes that, but that's part of the statement of faith of the AG. They believe in divine healing, the idea that the miraculous healings were a central part of what Jesus was doing, and they still continue even today as, as a central part of the church's ministry. Um, they often cite Isaiah 53.5 as support that physical healings come through Christ's crucifixion. By your stripes I am healed. Which is interesting, because pretty sure that's not necessarily what Isaiah is getting at, is that you're healed because Jesus was crucified. Because people were healed before his crucifixion. Um, I think we can be healed through God's power, but not necessarily, that first doesn't necessarily mean, no, it's specifically when he was, and it's the other thing is, I remember, I'm sorry, a little tangent, but I remember talking to an AG pastor who said, right, by cruci his crucifixion, we are healed. And I'm like, no, by your own arguments, by a scourging, right? By his stripes, we are healed. So when he was beaten, that's how we're healed. Crucifixion has nothing to do with it. It's like, no, it's, it's by the whole thing. I'm like, no, you said stripes. Or are you suggesting that maybe this is saying, because of his suffering, we're healed? It's not necessarily the stripes themselves. He's, yeah, yeah, right. So that doesn't necessarily have to include the crucifixion either. It's just his suffering in general. And he didn't want to have the conversation anymore. Yes? Sure. It's also not a physical healing. Isn't the reference in Yeah, and Isaiah, the whole point here is more like he changes you because of what he's done. It's by his, yeah. I'm not going to say that there is no connection. It's just kind of like to say, ah, Isaiah clearly says it's by his crucifixion. That's why we get healed today. Anyway, point is this. Second coming of Christ. Obviously, Christ pointed to a return. He's going to return. That's a crucially important part of what it means to be part of the AG. Anyway, so that's the Assemblies of God. They have their headquarters in Springfield, Missouri. I went to school in Springfield, Missouri, so I've been there multiple times. I've even been inside that building, which they affectionately refer to as the Blue Vatican. Um, it's this big blue building. It's really, really blue. Um, very, very not modern looking building. But uh, anyway, due to the growth of the Pentecostal churches, there's this new counter movement of cessationism that started. Um, and what is what do you think cessationism means? Pardon me? Well, to stop. To stop what? Miracles. Right. Miracles and sign gifts. And by sign gifts, it's gifts what you can see with big showy stuff. Sign gifts were something only for the launching of the church and not for today. Um, this is not what's going on. So the cessation of the charismata, and the word charismata here comes from the Greek word charismata, uh, meaning gifts. That's what that word means. And it's the word used by Paul for spiritual gifts from God in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 12, etc. So the charismata are these gifts that we get from God. Which means etymologically, when you talk about somebody being charismatic, you are specifically, literally saying they are gifted. We always think of it as, oh, no, they have this motivational power. And you go, that's because you tend to say that it's that, that, that leader is charismatic. That leader is gifted. Look at how he moves people. But it literally just means gifted. In modern technologically, no, technological, the, theological usage, there's a distinct difference between Pentecostals and Charismatics. If you ask a Pentecostal and a Charismatic, they will tell you there is a difference. Now, exactly what the difference is is an interesting conversation. But, in general, yes, there's some differences. And if I can extremely broad stroke it for you, Pentecostals tend to be extremely biblically conservative. They came out of that fundamentalist movement. They consider themselves evangelicals, or at least brothers and sisters of evangelicals, who focus on sign gifts and direct personal experience of God <laughs> through baptism in the Holy Spirit that we just talked about, as part of relatively traditional services, what we would consider relatively traditional services. But speaking in tongues, seeing people heal, that's, that's part of it. They, they sing a hymn, they sit in pews, and 
Bob grew a limb back. You know, it's just like, oh, well, yeah, this is, that's the service for today. Uh, this is my child. <laughs> yeah. Church, I mean, I went to church all growing up. So I'm like, so you you say that, and we, we laugh, but I'm like, yeah. You've heard me talk so many times. I just one of the things I most get a tickle out of Paul about is he's giving a sermon that is so long. Everybody's falling asleep. One guy falls asleep, falls out of the window, dies. Paul brings him back from the dead, and then keeps preaching. <laughs> And finishes the sermon because it's just part of the service. And the Pentecostals would say, "Why do you not want that anymore? I don't get that. Why are you cutting that chunk out of your out of your worship?" That would be the more Pentecostal end of that spectrum. Charismatic end of that spectrum. Most of the churches and groups that that consider themselves charismatic came into that movement from other more mainline denominations. They weren't necessarily part of that fundamentalist group of of, of Pentecostals. So they tend to be more theologically liberal, or even theologically um, with things, and they tend to focus on the gifts more experientially. It's the gifts themselves that becomes the focus of the service. That is why we're here, to experience God. Um, well, get to that in a sec. Um, they'll, have, they'll talk about the importance of ecstatic states, or maybe they won't talk about the importance of ecstatic states. Um, they usually have like prophets or pastors or prophets who are leading the movement, and, and everything's kind of focused around that personality, they will oftentimes have loud, very contemporary, very rhythmic kind of music. Um, a, a lot of charismatic uh, worship leaders are even very open about the fact that they design the worship service to be quiet and then to escalate emotionally and then to give people kind of a cooling off period. It's, it's an extremely emotive, ecstatic experience. It's just way simplified. And not every charismatic and every Pentecostal would agree with that. But in general, that's the direction that things would go. That's pretty much how you see a difference with things. Um, anyway, um, but we're talking about cessationism. Uh, the cessationists would say, no, no. Like, as Jonathan Edwards argued, miracles, healings, prophecies, speaking tongues, gifts of knowledge, all that kind of stuff, all ceased when the canon of Scripture closed. After that last Bible book was written, and after God said, no more new stuff, we don't need any more. No new information from God is needed. Therefore, no new information from God is coming. It doesn't work like that. Now, okay, how you feel about that church sign says a lot about your theology. If you say, you're right, God is still speaking. Yay! Or is it that, it's not like the canon is closed. It's not like theology can't be changed. God is still constantly saying, okay, what I said before, skip that. Here's a new thing. Which do you mean by God is still speaking? Because the church that says God is still speaking kind of means more the latter than the former. Um, now, I'm not, everybody's got a lot of little frowny faces about poor Jonathan Edwards. Whether or not you agree with it, do you understand the argument of saying, if God said, don't add any more to this book, because the Bible clearly says at the end of Revelation, don't add anything more to the Bible, right? Absolutely does not. Never, ever, ever says that. Says, don't add anything to the book of Revelation. Now, I think you can make a really good argument that it is unwise to start stapling new things to the Bible, but people are forever citing that at the end of Revelation, saying, well, it's at the end of the Bible, therefore it's about the whole Bible. And you no. John is saying, don't mess with the words of this prophecy. I think you can I think you make an argument that you can apply that, stretch it to, to other things. But John meant it for this. But I think it is unwise to start, like I said, stapling all sorts of new stuff, going, oh, let's st staple some Whitman to it. He was smart, you know. The Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession. I'm going to get emails from people. Um, yes. <laughs> you should add things, but to argue against that, there's gifts and miracles in the Bible. Yes, there are. So why does that mean we're adding to Because if you've got a prophetic word from God, then that is words of God that aren't in the Bible. Therefore, you are adding to the Bible. You're adding to the words of God. Which is interesting, because even the Bible, even <laughs> go back to John. But the Gospel of John, you said, oh, Jesus said, did lots of stuff that isn't in here, right? 
they're making the argument, right, that they were for establishing the validity of the scripture at that time. That's that part of it. No longer needs to happen. That's part of it. That's part of it. Um, well, and that's more what Jonathan Edwards himself is specifically saying is about establishing validity. But there's this whole argument going, but that's new information, and God is not going to give new information because he doesn't need to. Thus, any sign gifts that you ever see in a church today must, by definition, be counterfeit. If this, if it's not logically, if it's not from God, it must be counterfeit, right? Logically, that is logical. Now it's a big, huge if. Yeah. Um, so in any given instance, it could be from Satan trying to get people's minds off of worshiping God, right? There's a possibility, isn't it? Because now I'm all focused on gifts instead of God. It might be deceptions led by charismatic leaders who want people to follow them and control them through ecstatic states, right? And send them money and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And I'm sorry, I, I used a picture of Benny Hinn here. If you're familiar with him, I used a picture because he was kind of off kilter, but then he got himself really, uh, he tried to be very orthodox, he became an Assemblies of God pastor. And they got defrocked by the Assemblies of God for being decidedly off-kilter. They're like, no, you are just whipping up people's emotions. You are. This is not from God. So use him because because we're talking about the Assemblies. And the Assemblies specifically said, Benny, no. Stop doing that or we will defrock you. And he's like, yeah, got to speak the word of God. Or they might just be examples of mass hysteria. People who are getting excited and doing stuff because they're emotive about it. You know, it's not anybody, it's not deceptive necessarily. It's nobody trying to make them think wrong. They just think wrong. That's possible. A more moderate form of cessationism says, okay, I got it. It is possible that God might occasionally perform some sort of miracle. It is possible that God might give some sort of prophecy, that there might be some sort of healing under unusual circumstances. And as a result of prayer, yes, I'm not a deist. Yes, God can step in and do things, but it will never be just to create an ecstatic experience. It will never be to authentic authenticate some sort of new knowledge or doctrine. It'll never be just because some prophet, some charismatic leader came and said, here, have this gift. I can see that argument. Saying, well, if God does it, it's for God's purposes, not just so that you walk away going, yeah, that was, man, I'm just... I'm all sweaty because I went to church. You know, it's not for that. Just like I would argue, you look at the miracles of Jesus, they were never for the miracles themselves, right? He never healed somebody just because he wanted somebody healed. There was always a purpose to it. It's important to him, but there was always a purpose, a divine purpose. Of course, even within Pentecostalism, for the people who say, okay, I'm not a cessationist. No, I genuinely believe God still works. And I will say, since we're spending this much time chatting about it, um, I went to an Assemblies of God uh, campus fellowship in, in college, and the least Pentecostal Pentecostal fellowship you'll ever run into. There's a bunch of like hard science majors, physics, mathematics, computer science, triple majors, and stuff there. Um, and it was interesting because I grew up very cessationist, and and my discipler did something that I would never have the guts to do as a discipler, but he was much better at this than I am. He said, "All right, tell you what, um, have your own Bible study on." Show me, in scripture, where the sign gifts are only for scripture time. Make an argument. I trust your judgment. Make an argument from scripture as to why we should believe that that is not for today. And I said, you're on. About three weeks later, I went, I can't! I can't! I can't! There's nothing in scripture that supports that and tons of things that don't. And so I, I'm like, I, I just... What I don't see in scripture is a lot of the ways that people do this today. And he's like, oh, I totally am with you on that one. And so even within Pentecostalism, there's this argument of saying, oh, no, we can still speak in tongues. There's still miracles. There's still prophecies. That doesn't mean people do it right. There's a lot of people out there doing it wrong. Instead of genuine speaking in tongues, there are people who just babble ecstatically because they're in an ecstatic state. They might as well be doing the Sundance. They're not thinking straight. Oh, there are genuine healings, but there are also people out there who are just experiencing placebo effects. There are people out there who are conning one another. Yes, God can heal. And there are people who aren't really being healed. 
And yes, most Pentecostals think that the snake handlers are just plain screwy. Does this come out of the Pentecostal movement? Absolutely. Why do they handle snakes? Anybody remember? Anybody know? Nope. No? Well, no. Right. Is that meaning that you should handle them? But what they're saying is this, let's be faithful. And let's show our faith by handling snakes as part of our service. Um, oh, golly, I don't even remember now. But it's, it's somebody can look it up if you want to. It's when he's sending out the disciples. Yeah. Right? He said he won't be harmed by anybody, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, if you're actually going out in my will, you're not going to, you don't have to worry about this. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. And you're not going to be harmed by snakes. And arguably, Paul then comes in and doesn't get, when he gets bitten, he doesn't get dead, right? So you can argue that's that's what Jesus was talking about. Pretty much, because when I talk about Pentecostals, I don't want people to go, oh, snake handlers. No. 99% of the world's Pentecostals go, oh, please don't relate me to them. Oh, please, please, please. Um, but these guys say, right, we will handle venomous snakes because that way we show that we trust God. Didn't he say that we won't be harmed by snakes? And you go, okay, A, that was an example that he said at that time. It wasn't necessarily prescriptive for everybody going out. B, even if it were, you're not going out. You're standing in the middle of your worship service. See, you're making it all about how faithful you are. And it has nothing to do with God protecting you as you go share his gospel. Where am I? B, C, D? Uh, they get bitten all the time! They get killed by snake bite all the time. They go to hospital all the time with this kind of stuff. Um, and what they usually say is, yeah. Obviously, he wasn't faithful. Obviously, there had to have been some sort of sin in his life. Clearly. So, really, really, kind of just plain screwing. 1914. Still, same year, Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. That's important, don't you think? Yeah, I'll talk about this. Franz is the great-grandson of Emperor Franz Joseph the first of Austria-Hungary, who himself survived an assassination attempt about 60 years earlier. Franz Joseph is maybe 300 years old at this time. And he's just, just plugging away this iron horse. It's just not going anywhere. But this guy is the heir apparent to the imperial throne. So he's like, eventually I will die, possibly. And there has to be somebody to take my place. And they... That my great-grandson is the next one in line technically to do that. I don't actually like him. Franz Joseph has went on record as saying how much he didn't like Franz Ferdinand. And when Franz Ferdinand actually died, he's like, actually, it's something of relief. Uh, because that means this idiot is not going to be on the imperial throne. And let's be honest, Franz Ferdinand's kind of an idiot. Kind of not the brightest bulb. He's dense. He doesn't care about anybody else. He's just kind of going around doing whatever he feels like doing at any given time. However... The emperor said, all right, go, go watch the maneuvers of the Austro-Hungarian army in Bosnia. Go do something of merit. Because we just recently conquered Bosnia. They're on the rise, the orange section on the, on the map. These guys are growing. They're, they're, they're starting to push toward Poland that Russia had recently rightfully conquered. <laughs> um, and so they're taking over all sorts of bits and snippets of everybody else, including Bosnia. They're like, yep. Yeah, Took that from the Ottomans, the Ottoman Turks guys, the green guys in the corner over here. Yep, those guys had been basically running Bosnia for a long time, and the Austro-Hungarians finally took it over, including its capital of Sarajevo, right? You guys have probably heard of Sarajevo. Anyway, as a show of authority and a doofusy version of showing solidarity, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie decided to take part in the parade in Sarajevo as part of their St. Peter's Day celebrations which were celebrations celebrating their independence from the Ottomans. Look, we're free! No, now we're Austro-Hungarians. He's like, yes, I will go celebrate this, the freedom of my new subjects. The local military attaché is like, yeah, might not go over well. Maybe, maybe if France conquered America right after the Revolutionary War, the French king probably shouldn't be touring during the Fourth of July celebration. I'm just I'm just saying that might go over badly. Don't do that. 
But Franz Ferdinand said, nope, no, I'm going to do it, because they love me there. What with the fact that I'm in charge now? See, we actually have active threats against you. No, no, they love me. They actually have active threats against him, including one group called the Black Hand. Because no terrorist groups, the fuzzy bunnies, right? You know, you got <laughs> the Black Hand. And they specifically say, we are going to kill him if he comes to this area the Serbian nationalist terrorist group. So they said, we're going to plan his assassination. We're going to make a political statement against the Austria-Hungarian Austria occupation of Serbian lands. You know, it's technically it's Bosnian. You go, no, no, it's all Serbian. We're Serbs living here. So yes, we're going to kill him. Because then the world will know and leave us alone. Because <laughs> why? <laughs> if you kill the heir apparent, they're just going to leave you alone? Yeah, that's wisdom. Actually, though, even though they plan to assassinate him, his death is still an accident. And there are some moments in history that are so incredibly stupid that they need to be remembered for all time. And this is one of those ones where I'm like, so dumb. Donald Ilyich, uh, the secret leader of the Black Ant, placed six assassins along the parade route. We're going to take him down. Well, one of them, actually, a guy named Gavrilo Princip, wasn't along the parade route. He was supposed to be, but he got lost. So he's nowhere near the parade route. He's like, where? where? Nuts. So he went to the nearby cafe and just sat down and had a drink. He's like, I can't find the parade, so I guess I'm out of here. But the other five, the other five assassins, they're great. Because the first two got scared and didn't do anything. They stood there with their bombs going, oh, I can't. Let the parade go right on past them. But the third guy, this guy threw the bomb right at the Archduke's car, right on schedule. Bomb that bounced off and blew up the car. Behind him. Didn't injure, didn't injure the Archduke at all. So this guy, being a good suicide assassin, says, that's it, I'm going to go take poison, but not enough. And then I'm going to fling myself into the nearby river. I'm going to drop. All he did was get really, really sick. He threw up a lot. Um, I'm going to throw myself into the nearby river. Drown myself. They'll never find my body. Of course, this time, the nearby river was five inches deep. So, oh, no. I'm saying the Black Hand may not be the best group of assassins and terrorists in the world. Not really very bright. <laughs> so, Black Hand continues on, goes, gives the speech he's supposed to give. And in the speech, he complains, well, you guys are being very unwelcoming. Really? <laughs> You're chewing the the subjects, the conquered people, out for not liking you there. And you're chewing up the people who didn't throw the bomb at you. Bronze. Anyway, after that, instead of just leaving like everybody told him to, you're like, you know what, maybe you should just go back. Just go back to Austria-Hungary. Just leave. He's like, no, I'm going to go visit the survivors of the earlier bomb. Where are they? Well, they're in a local hospital. All right, take me to the local hospital. Let's go. Sir, you really should just leave. No, no, let's go. Show force. We're going to show magnanimousness and necessity. We're going to go talk to them. Unfortunately, the hospital wasn't on the planned parade route, and uh, Google Maps was not up. So the driver didn't know how to get there and was too scared to ask anybody. He's like, oh, I'm going to get in serious trouble if I ask. I think I vaguely know. So he started driving around and got himself horribly lost. Ended up on a one-way back street. He's like, ah, uh, nurse. Comes up to a dead end. He's like, and I got to back the car up. Franz Ferdinand is livid, going, where's the hospital? He's like, uh, I'm working on it, sir. I'm working on it, sir. So he's stuck at the dead end of a one-way, one out-of-the-way street. Across from the cafe where God of the Princess is having a drink. Who goes? <laughs> no way. So he gets up and he shoots him. Bitty gun shoots both the Archduke and his wife Sophie. The black hand goes, This is a great political coup. We win! You're the dumbest assassins ever. Happily for you, you just happen to shoot like one of the dumbest leaders ever. Never realizing what a firestorm this is going to set off. Yay, we win! You go, oh, you lose. So very, very, very badly. Yes? I don't even know. I don't even know exactly. I, I think after they blew up the wrong car, they might just been, we're leaving. We're going to go home. Where's Gavlo? So how would you summarize what we've talked about today? Let's end this. How did, 
where are we at? What would you say about the world as it stands right here? Interesting. Is there, a, is there a lesson to be learned from that today? Okay, don't kill people. That's good. But maybe that whole emotive thing, not the best way of making a good argument. Maybe we can disagree a little bit more agreeably. Yeah, let's attend that. Join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you are so much smarter than we are. And I thank you for your heart and the love that you give us. I pray, help us, Lord, to have a sense of how to follow you better in our lives, how to follow you in disagreement, how to encourage one another, how to see you as the, as the infinite, big God that you are, instead of trying to shove you into little boxes. And I pray, Lord, help us not to shove one another in little boxes either. We give all this to you and pray that you be glorified in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.